Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And as I continue to climb this mountain um, of enlightenment, uh, these things tend to uh, happen in a very cosmic fashion. And um, I was blessed to uh, have the opportunity via George Walker to uh, attend the um, Springfield Creamery uh, Christmas party. And uh, it was profound on many levels. And uh, many, one specifically is just the fact that I was able to meet some people that I have long coveted and, um, you know, in my journeys, and, and one of them um, is my next guest. Uh, she's a profound healer and uh, a practicer of the uh, ancient shamanic um, traditions and wisdom traditions of the ancient healers, um, and she's written uh, just a tremendous amount about it, uh, but I think her days of enlightenment stretch back um, to her um, time um, in, in Southern California and Northern California, uh, when um, we were really, as a country, um, coming out of the most repressive uh, decade uh, of the 50s, and um, she was part of a revolution of consciousness at that time, which led her um, to travel the world and eventually connect with the timeless land of Egypt. Um, and uh, when I saw her the other night, I said, I knew immediately that uh, she's the real deal because in her eyes there was pure light, pure love. And my show is about leadership and love and overcoming adversity and the lineage of every yogic practice. Nikki Scully, an honor to welcome you to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Well, thank you, my friend. It's such an honor to have you. You know, um, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. I want you to take a listen to this person. I also want you to take a listen to the content, and then we'll come back and break it down. Okay. Talk about most is Theolonius Monk. Go ahead. Do you know his middle name? Uh, no. Sphere. Like a round ball. A sphere. Sphere. Unbelievable. Thelonious Monk. Thelonious Sphere monks. Sphere. And he was magnificent. And uh, I closed the Renaissance with Thelonious Monk. The Renaissance, the cool jazz place that, that hosted everybody from, uh, from Miles to Lord Buckley. Uh, run by Benny Shapiro. I love this. Who lived on Horn Street. <laughs> Was it? Yeah. I'll tell you a story. There were these uh, 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 stairs going down uh, to the dressing room. Uh, from uh, you come off Sunset Boulevard and you open this door, and there were these steep stairs that went down, down, down into the dressing rooms. And I got there early with chalk, and I wrote things like, "Go back three steps." Spin around two times, go forward ten steps, and and so forth. And then I hit, I hit and waited for Monk to show up. And he comes in and he looks at it 
And sure enough, he spins around. He goes back six, forward two. Oh, my God. It took him 15 minutes to get down the stairs. It was hilarious. <laughs> and at that moment, I give him this big, fat joint that uh, uh, I, I had saved for him because it was like you... you you floated. You you did not feel your feet in contact with the earth with this weed. Right. We ducked in the closet, uh, put a towel on the floor to cover the crack. Something I learned from musicians to uh, not let the weed smoke drift out into the general environment. Right. Lit up the joint for Monk, and he <laughs> took it in in one toke. He blew down the whole joint with one when one hit. That's unbelievable. Oh, it was just this big glowing thing that got bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, we were in the dark, but he lit up the place with the pot. Then he went upstairs to play, and he he started out and he hit the wood on both sides with his knuckles. <laughs> then he made a little adjustment and played flawlessly for the rest of the night. All right, Nikki Scully, do you know who that is? No. <laughs> okay, that... I, and I'm trying to picture where that is because I used to live there. I know, and that is a dear friend of yours, I, I, I hope, still, Wavy Gravy. Of course. Yes. I knew it sounded familiar. <laughs> no, it's hard over the phone. So this is why, because in doing research for this interview, I noticed that you were from this bastion of this hotbed of activity in Southern California and you were growing up, and in 64 or so, that area, you were 20 years old or so, and the Renaissance was there, and I wanted to talk to Nikki Scully about, were you going to the Ash Grove? Were you going to the Renaissance? What kind of music were you hip to? And this is prior to going to the Bay Area, because Southern California had its own vibe. I was going to the Troubadour. Do you remember the Troubadour? Well, I was born in 78. I mean, it's still there today. I mean, I guess my, my were, did you grow up? I mean, did you did you get hooked on? Um, no, I was hooked on, at that time, I was hooked on folk music. Right. So I'm curious, and I'm curious about like. I never got into jazz. Right. But I mean, like the, the, the magical thing about that time uh, was that you did have this old, this overlap of genres. I mean, uh, you, you know, it, w it was not out of the question for uh, you know, like. I mean, Wavy would open, would close the, would close a venue doing stand up with Thelonious Monk. Um, it was kind of all music back then. Uh, did you go to the Ash Grove? No, I basically mostly went to the Troubadour and hung out with people like David Crosby and, um, you know, God. I'd hard to remember the names of the people that came out of that particular place but that's where the music that touched me was and and the people of that time oh god my memory is so bad i mean the a lot of very very famous people came out of the troubadour oh i, I mean hope i even have the name right Oh, you're absolutely no, you're 100 percent correct. I mean, because you were you're you were an LA product, right? I mean, from Los Angeles, um, Beverly Hills, actually. But, but, but yeah, I hated it. I mean, I was just like a in a foreign country. 
<laughs> I I couldn't even I couldn't stand Beverly High. I was there for one year, and I said I got to go somewhere else. And so my mom was kind enough to drive me all the way to Uni, which was in Brentwood, where I, you know, where there were there were cool people like. Um, well, it just had a variety of people, and they weren't all checking out each other's cashmeres. I just wasn't into any of that. So I was kind of a loner. And um, I didn't get turned on. Well, I got turned on to acid in 1964. Yes. And then I would go, and I would sit on this Sunset Strip, and at the time I had a little house way back in the canyon behind, oh, where, oh, I can't think of the name of it. Was it the Topanga Canyon? No, no, no. It was a much less known canyon. (laughs) There was only this one big, uh, two big estates back there, and um, Will Rogers State Park. And I was, anyway, I, I would just, I'd go up to the strip, and I'd sit there, and I, I could see how people walked like stick forms. And then every then every so often, somebody that was obviously high was just relaxed and grooving, walking by. And somehow, I would connect with people, and I would take them home and turn them on to acid and guide them, even though I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> This is absolutely, I knew, see, I knew that, I, I, I don't want to, I have another audio clip, but I, I'm going to save it because it's so good, but now explain this because I think even though it's almost a blessing in disguise, you didn't know what you were doing. What, <laughs> like, 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 what were, like, at the time, I just want to be clear, at the time, LSD was legal, is that right? Yeah. So... It was not. There was no stigma attached to it, and it no. But nobody knew what it was. I mean, we had a party one time in L.A. where somebody took too much because we remember the doses back then were very strong, like they were 330. And um, he took off all his clothes and went running around, and we chased him down. And the cops found him oh. and brought him to us. And, oh, we said, oh, he's just a, a studying philosophy at Berkeley or something. And they <laughs> let it go and walked away. They didn't know what was wrong with him. <laughs> wow. wow. And, and, you know, that was back when you could tell the cops because they all wore shiny to- showed shiny shoes. You know, they dressed like hippies except that they had shiny shoes. Right, right, <laughs> right. Weird. Exactly. It was, it was the most... So, I mean, how did... I just want to go back to something. I mean, how... So you left the pretentious local school and you went to another school. Is that... How, how did you get hip to acid? I was living in New York for a year, for maybe a couple of years. I can't remember. And I had a really good job at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, which had a future to it. But a cousin of mine came up from Florida and turned me on to pot and introduced me to much DMT and wound up dropping out of college. But he told me about acid. And I was fascinated. And at the time, I read everything I could find about it, and which wasn't much. Um, 
and went home and went up to Berkeley to find this friend of mine because I was sure she'd know I, where I could get some. And she was appalled, but her roommate's boyfriend <laughs> told me a spot that, hey, I can, I can hook you up. Right, right, right. So I didn't really trust him. You know, I mean, it was, like, pretty out there for me. So I had him come down for Passover dinner with his friend, and they were both on acid. And, but nobody in my family could tell that there was anything weird. <laughs> of course. And I figured, well, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. So I went up to Berkeley, and it was just me, and they gave me this big, huge pill or capsule never saw one again that looked like it. It was this giant orange capsule. Wow. I took it, and we waited and waited and waited, and nothing happened. We finally went to breakfast at, at the House of Pancakes, and that's where I came on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then they managed to get me back, and I rolled up in a sleeping bag, curled up in a sleeping bag for three or four hours, and then I went exploring. And that was that. And the, my life was forever changed. I mean, that's where when my life started. Explain. Okay, this is really. First of all, I'm, I'm really. Uh, this is so crucial. I know it's stretching you out in terms of the timeline, but um, you um, you went to New York in in what year? Well, let's see. I think I turned 21 in New York. So it was like 64. I went there at the end of. No, I went in 60, I don't remember. Well, you were, you were born in 43, that's, at least that's what it said. Because I was born in 43. Right, so it was 60. Maybe 62, I don't know. Right, so so this is just important for the, the landscape. So, I mean, you, you that's when you got hip to it, and then did you actually go um, to college, or, or was it? Was I went to University of Arizona. went to college for about two and a half years and then I dropped out actually because some hippies went drove through town and I'd never seen that was the, actually the first hippies I'd ever seen and so I wasn't really getting anything out of school and so I dropped it and went home I think I left New York actually because my family needed me I need to go to work to help my mom. Yeah. That's right. And so I was working for Four Star Television. And um, and then I would just go pick up people on the strip and take them home and turn them on. <laughs> uh, this is... Uh, wait, oh, oh, did I just hear you correctly? You went to University of Arizona? Is that what you said? Yeah. That's where I li I live in Tucson. Oh, uh -huh. well... That is so I tripped out. I, can't. I don't know. <laughs> So you so so you, you weren't really getting anything out of school at that time, um, but when your life started, uh, can you talk about how at that time, even though, um, I mean, you were in a sleeping bag, you went to IHOP, and then you went exploring, how Nikki Scully accessed your multidimensional self at that time when it's that's when your life started. Well. Then when I went home, I went down to Canner's Delicatessen, and my future husband was um, selling it 
in the back, and I was buying it in the front. Oh, my God. I never God. went to the back parking lot. <laughs> oh, my God. And I didn't go to the acid test because they were in Watts. And being a Beverly Hills girl, I wasn't thinking that Watts would be a good place to go to a party. <laughs> so I missed the acid test. That, well, see, you, you read my mind because uh, Hugh Romney, form, uh, formerly known as Hugh Romney, Wavy Gravy, was uh, was at Watts. And I was like... When did so you didn't really get hip to wavy till later? Is that right? Right, but I got to know them because, and I I must have had relationships with some of the hog farms because when I got the call saying, you know, we need some help. This is from Bill Graham's um, um, promotion company. Yes. We want to set up um, a place for the kids because you guys have so many kids now that you, you know, we want to, we don't want them just running around these concerts wild like they have been. We want to set up a scene for them so they'll be safe. So I called up, um, I don't know who I called up, Wavy, Susie. I don't know. Sure. I, I think I called up Wavy. I called Johanna and I said, what do you guys think? You want to do this? And they said, yeah. So then that's how, I mean, they, they were running side by side, the hog farm and the Grateful Dead. But once they started taking care of our kids and then started their camp, then it was all just kind of one big happy family. And then Bob married Susie, and um, that sort of solidified the marriage. <laughs> but um, that was a really long time ago. No, I, 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 I recognize. I mean, it, this is, like, very important because I know that you fundamentally had this life-changing experience uh, in 78 when I was birthed. But I want – I think it goes way back in your lineage – um, and you know, so, but I don't know that I can't know that because my grandfather walked out of Russia when he was five and wound up in Michigan. And so things were pretty bad and nobody ever talked about it. And that's both sides of my family. Um, you know, because yeah. Well, and when did he actually, how did he? He emigrated to the States in what year? Do you have any idea? It was like 1910 or 1915 or something like that? My mother was born in 1919 or 18. And, and he was five, so he had to be an adult. So my, around the turn of the century, this maybe is... to, yeah, around the turn of the century. So he got out before... Before and then he yeah. pushed all for Michigan, and then he became an attorney. <laughs> wow, he 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 got out before World War One. Yes. Wow. And then you wind up in Beverly Hills, but yet um, you have no spiritual materialism. You know you're a loner, and when the intersection of LSD occurred, I am curious about. 
because I've interviewed Dr. Larry Brilliant. I've interviewed Wavy five or six times. I've interviewed Krishna Das. And these guys were over with Maharaji. And I'm wondering, as it relates to Nikki Scully, were you... I, no, I didn't have any teachers. Were you, but I mean, did, did you, in the late 60s, though, before you, because I think you were talking about Jerry's kids and you're talking about the uh, taking care of the kids at the dead shows. Um, in the late 60s, could you talk about your searching for spirituality at that time or were you just eating ass? No, actually, I, I didn't, I was very naive. And, it's, I, I, I just don't want to go into the story of my first marriage. It was just horribly abusive, and I, you know, I mean, took it as far as I could. It's a miracle I'm alive. And, um, and then I fell in love with rock. And when I fell in love with rock, I wasn't interested in the Grateful Dead. I was only interested in rock, and I only got to know Jerry because one night my previous husband, you know, I didn't want to go with him to a concert, so I gave him my whole thing of 28 people went to the hospital. I looked outside and... Um, Oh, God, I can't think of his name. He just died, the, the writer. Robert um, Hunter. Yeah, and Hunter was Fred Eagle out in the street in front of my house, and Owsley was dragging him, and I went and got him and helped him get him upstairs. And Owsley said, what was in that bottle? And I just went, oh, no. You know, I said, well, I can assure you from Ken's side it was just acid. I don't know what else might have been in there, but it was just acid. And um, and then he called Jerry, and he passed out, and Jerry came to look after Hunter, and we sat up all night and talked, and that's how I got to know Jerry. That is then, power. This is so... Wait, hold on for a second. I want, um, so your first husband, um, you met in at the Cantor's Deli, but... He was oh, no, 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 no. That was rock. Oh, that, okay, so that was, okay, so. He, so, but, he but, was in the back, and I was in the front. I didn't meet him for years. You did, okay, I, okay, that, okay, I, now I, so. His husband was a, a legendary smuggler who took advantage of me yeah. when I was high, and instead of, um, explaining to me how acid worked and how when you have a full-on death-rebirth experience and you love everything around you, it's not the person, it's the acid. And he, I, you know, he just trapped me for a few years and it was, it was pretty horrible. And when I got out of that, um, then Rock and I were able to get together. And 
I got, when he went to Woodstock, I went and got on a plane to follow him the day after. And it was happened to be the plane the band was on, so I sat with Jerry and stayed with Jerry until we found Rock. And, you know, so my bond with Jerry was completely different than with anybody else in the band and he wound up living with Rock and I at not a really good time in their career and um, that's when I left and took my kids and went to Oregon because I'd, uh, Egypt had happened I went to Egypt four times that first year and by the last time I was committed to becoming a healer and I didn't even know what that meant but I knew I had to go and find a teacher and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it in the middle of the Grateful Dead while I was the gatekeeper. And so I left. Took my kid, packed up my kids and moved to Mike Hagen's shack in, um, up in the hills, the south hills of Eugene, and I've been here ever since. I just feel so honored to be talking to Nikki Scully live on the Jake Feinberg Show right now. She is... Um, you know, um, just to be clear, the bottle of acid, you're saying, was that really turning out to be acid that sent 30 people to the hospital? Was Hunter in a coma? I mean, that what happened there? What, what was it? Well, there was another guy, I, I won't mention his name, mm -hmm. that was a dealer who also had a bunch of stuff that he put in it, and I can't speak for what he put in it. I don't know. But somehow the same big jug of apple juice got put, I think it was 28 people in the hospital, and, and including Janice, and including Hunter, and Hunter's um, girlfriend or wife went missing, and I mean, it was a mess. It was a horrible thing, and I, you know, always or a little guilt because I should have gone to that and that never would have happened depending on what the other guy did right well absolutely but I, I mean I'm surprised I'd already learned that you know do that you have to you have, you're responsible for every person that you give it to and so then I was much more careful and have been ever since. But that was all during the time it was legal. So you didn't go to Watts, um, but then you made a, a decision to go and move to Palo Alto? Why did you decide to move to the Bay Area? I moved, actually, I was first in Marin County and then in the city wow. because I was looking for people like me, <laughs> finding them in yeah. L.A. And um, I missed the, the first BN because I had promised my boyfriend I'd come and do a goodbye mescaline trip with him, and I did. Right. And so <laughs> I didn't really connect. Well, I guess Rock was a client of my 
husband at the time. And he had brought me up to Oregon to a party at Kesey's, and I was pretty freaked out, so he made me sit in the car. And Rock came out and found me and just sat with me and looked after me. And that's how our bond started. And then when I separated from my husband, he was just right there to pick up the pieces. And I, I told him, you know, when I, I went to this concert, and he kind of met me at the back door and let me in. And, and we just knew we were in love. And I said, you know, you need to know, I'm, I'm pregnant. You know, and he said, oh, you're going to be so beautiful. And that was it. I was done. <laughs> that's so beautiful. That is such I a. Was, I mean, that's so. That is. That's a, that. You can't. That is just the most beautiful thing I've heard all in a long time. And he stuck with me. And raised her as his own. Until he became a junkie, and I had to leave. Right. No. I. I mean, we are. Um, Kesey was was the family had property in 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 Oregon when you went up there. In this, it was he grew, the, he grew up at that farm. Uh, yes, he, he grew yeah. up at that farm in Pleasant Hill. And so you went there. I'm just you know what it is because. Um, when I interviewed one of my interviews with George Walker, he started talking about these hovels in near Stanford on Perry Lane. That uh, was before, that was when Kesey was going to school, and they were they would have all these parties, and and he was in the experiment. Kesey was in the experiment at the university at Stanford while he was getting his PhD, and so. He would just heist the um, acid from the lab and take it up to these parties they were having up in the hill. But I never went to any of them, but that's how Mountain Girl got in, because she was working at Stanford at a lab. Oh, she was. She was running um, their spectrogram. I can't remember how to pronounce this. But then one day she decided to take something she was testing, and that was the end of that career. <laughs> wait, no, but this is so wait. not mine to tell. Absolutely. I mean, take it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, that, that'll come when I hang with Mountain Girl. But it, this is so beautiful. The, 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 the thing that I think acid became that's one reason you had the Longshore. I know you weren't there for Watts or the Longshoreman's Hall, but acid was on its way to becoming illegal. So, um, like, when were were you up? Did you come to the? Did you come? Did you meet Rock in '67? Do we have a date? I mean, it was it before? When did you meet him? Probably '67. And then, and you were still with your. But the, I was yeah. with Ken until, God, I don't know. Um, in the summer of 1969, and then we sort of solidified it in at Woodstock. And you were pregnant at that time. 
Wow. And I was pregnant at Altamont. I was like eight months pregnant at Altamont. Do you remember, like, because I, I, re I recognize the other night being with you guys, it was so cathartic because it reinforced to me that there was this whole phantom ship, as Peter Rowan called it, known as the Grateful Dead. Hmm. And then there was, um, and then, and then there was Garcia, Jerry Garcia, just by himself. There's this whole. Amen. I mean, they're all shamans in a sense, but he was the he was the real shaman. Can I? Add, it was, I yeah, understand those the music until I started doing ayahuasca ceremonies and realized how important the music was and how we were that tribe and those were our um, God, I forget what they call those sacred songs that would take us to places and teach us things and open up worlds and universes to us to explore. And that's what made it different than any other music. Now, was, the, the, you said ayahuasca? Did I hear that? The, 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 the Native American... Uh, no. no. Ayahuasca is not Native American. It's Peruvian. When and, did, yeah. and Colombian and Brazilian. When did that... So that was prevalent as well as... Uh, no, 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 no. It wasn't until then. It was much, much later. The Icaros, that's what their songs were called. And that's when I realized that for the tribe that was the Grateful Dead and family, inner and outer, those were our Icaros. Those were our sacred songs. I'm just, I am just overwhelmed right now. You know, listen, we have another name that voice. This is somebody that tragically, um, well, I'm going to put it in for you. I want you to listen to it. I know you knew him very well. I want you to listen to this and then we'll come back and talk about it. Leary and, and company didn't want to accommodate me that particular night, but uh, uh, they they turned me on to a friend of mine, a friend of theirs at, at Westland, uh, who was more than happy to do so. Uh, very shortly thereafter, and and we had an institution at Westland at that point. One of the ways in which Westland was spending all its money was that they had a, something called the Curry Con Curry concerts every Friday night, where there was a wonderful old farmhouse out in the, out in the woods in Connecticut, and they had a, an FM musicology program that was second to none, and they had in residence uh, Ravi Shankar and Narayan Swami, Nayasar, God, I can't pronounce his name, uh, and Ali Akbar Khan, and uh, two or three other you know, really significant uh, classical Indian uh, musicians. I went to that, and there was my friend, and he, he gave me a, a you know, a God-seeing do 
jokes of LSD, and I sat down and started listening to the music until I until I became it, and uh, and then transcended it, and and then I went back to back to Millbrook quite a number of times. I got to know Tim pretty well. Uh, I frankly was a little skeptical about things in Millbrook. Uh, Ram Dass has been uh, in his in his earlier guys was was just a, an unbelievable snake oil salesman, hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and and so was Jim to a certain extent. Uh, and I I was suspicious of them, uh, and but I was certainly less suspicious of them than I was of what I had heard was going on on the West Coast, which I thought was just an appalling, catastrophic tale of drug abuse, where they were filling up, you know, bathtubs full of Kool-Aid and mixing in LSD and giving people a paper cup, which just sounded like a recipe for, for uh, some kind of mass hallucination and catastrophe. Right, right. Well, I heard you laughing, and it makes me really... You know who that is? No. I'm not an East Coast person. Well, he, this guy wasn't either. He was a dear friend of yours and one of the old-school Wyoming cowboys. That was the late, great John Perry Barlow. What? Oh, my beloved John. I know. Oh, my God. And I he want was you one to, of my friends. I know. And I want you... You know what it is? Bar, that was our... That interview was from February of 2015 on my radio program, and it was, then he contracted this bizarre thing. He had a, an infection on his heel, and it metastasized, and he got really sick. And it, I got, when did you meet him? I, I, so much of his life force and spirit was so intense, and obviously he was talking about Millbrook and, you were in New York. That's actually where you got hip to acid, but I know you were only there for a year. Um, I was never part of any, any acid scene in New York. Of course, ever. of course not. Um, Except for Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, did John Perry Bar. When did John Perry Barlow enter the, enter your consciousness? Um, as I got to know, the Grateful Dead. Um, I was aware of him, but it wasn't until a show at Red Rocks, and I don't know when, but it was a very long time ago, and he had an infection in his elbow, and I was already doing healing then, and so I tried to help him, and when I would put my hands over him or on his arm or whatever I was doing. I usually don't touch people when I do healings. Um, it, you could just watch it disappear. But then as soon as I took my hands away, it would come back. No. No. And that was just too weird. But he and I became really good friends that night. And stayed that way forever. 
and I did get to see him just before he passed. I went to the hospital. Well, there's an iconic picture of you and him and, and Geraldine with a Grateful Dead flag. It's I can't tell exactly what year it is, but it warmed my heart. And well, there's very few pictures of me out there. I somehow avoided the cameras. You've done it very, very well. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, so let's just break. Let's let's get to the nitty gritty here. I mean, you. Um, now, <laughs> when did you, when did you start getting the, the, pre did you have any premonition or visions? And I'm talking like years before, I mean, the fact that you were with rock and rock was, um, I'll read you a quote. Uh, I don't have it queued up right now, but rock was. I never met the cat, but he clearly was able to handle many different situations, and you were um, part of this incredibly dynamic scene of culture and art and improv. And and the healing part of it, though, sounds singular to you. And I just wanted to know about maybe some of the trial and error or just maybe some of the the prophetic stuff that you might have had prior to going to Egypt? None. Not that level. You were a, base, mean, you were a mother raising your kid and, 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 and marinating in, in the, and doing the, like, what were my, you, yeah. My hands would turn on at concerts when I was high, and I knew they could heal, but I didn't, on the last trip that first year and since then I've led more than 60 tours personally to Egypt groups um, but that last time I was there with one of my daughters and the other one had a prophetic dream, and she wouldn't go because she was locked in a pyramid in her dream. And, uh, oh, jeez. But my older daughter went. I think she might have been about 11 at the time, or maybe she was 9. I, don't, I can't remember. It was 1979, um, so she would have been 9. Yeah. And... Um, and we were out in this boat, this little boat that we were taking on a felucca down the Nile for five days, and we were moored on a sandbar, and one of my friend's daughters, who was a little older than Acacia, she must have been about 11, dove into the water thinking it was deep, and it wasn't. And she came up seemingly paralyzed. It was really scary. Dear God, this is the year after the initial run to Egypt. This is 79. 79. Holy I, cow. I kept going back because I wanted to find out what was that magic that was compelling me. Huh. And, you know, I finally got told, go home and, you know, when I, well, after this incident, um, so here's this child, and she's terrified and paralyzed, and, and 
you know, she just dove and smashed her head against her body. And um, nobody knew what to do, and we were hours from any kind of help. And I had this little crystal that a Native American friend had given to me and told me it could amplify and, you know, if you ever needed to heal, this is the sea face, this is what you use. So I pointed the, heal- the, the crystal at her and prayed like crazy, and suddenly she was back. And Oh, my gosh. I, and that's when I made my commitment to become a healer, but I didn't know what it meant. And then when I got back home, I'm looking around, and it's like, I'm not going to be able to do anything or learn anything in this scene because I'm too busy covering for Jerry and Rock. And so I packed up my kids and moved to Oregon because I used to tell Rock when we'd come up here, these houses are smiling at me, you know, we should live there sometime. And so I called my friend Tangerine, which was um, Rock's previous partner who was my best friend, and she had a son. We shared her son that was tragically lost in the tsunami, but that's another story. Mm. But um, it was Rock's son. And... uh, um, within a couple of days, she had a place for me to live. And it was just a shack, but I figured, well, I'll find a place. But I couldn't find a place. And when Hagen called and said, look, you can have it, and gave me a price that I could afford, I took it. And then I spent the next three years, well, the next 35 years, building it around me. <laughs> but three years to make it livable. Um, when you, um, like, yeah, well, I mean, you were, when you, when you say you were, you know, I mean, my favorite era of the Grateful Dead is obviously you lived it and you hated it was the early 80s. And I don't quite um, understand the reality of it, but when you say you were covering for Rock and Jerry, I mean, what? what? No, I left in the beginning of 1981. Right. Because they were so hopelessly addicted, I thought if I went and learned how to become a healer, I could bring back those tools. Right. Um. Although. I did, I know that me and Mountain Girl and a bunch of people that were at the Oregon Country Fair when when Jerry went into a coma did some work that I believe helped him, Um, but I don't want to go into details. And I certainly wasn't working alone, but the... The week after, the week after I took my first 
lesson with the teacher that I found. Um, I was so excited. No, no, it wasn't my it wasn't my teacher. It was Reiki. I was first introduced to Reiki. And the following week, I went down to the Bay Area, and there was a benefit. And I can't remember the woman who was playing with them, but it was an acoustic benefit. And at the Warfield. And so this must have been 81. No, it was Joan Baez, right? No, this one wasn't Joan Baez. It was uh, um, another woman. Joan Baez was later. And, and we were already in Oakland by then. This was... No, this was this was a small. I I can't remember. And I can't you, remember by the way, you're doing a phenomenal job. I just want to be clear. You move. You you decided the houses were smiling, and you left. I, you left. Bergen, I found within three months I was initiated to Reiki. The following week I went to California to this benefit. I went up and got myself situated in the center of the balcony. Yes. And I started hooking up people using what I learned from Reiki and made a chain of it. And I was so excited with what I was experiencing that when the concert was over, I ran to find Rock backstage. And when I got there, he was standing there with John Kahn, who had been playing a stand-up bass. And that's kind of harsh with the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's one thing with the Garcia band, but it's something else with the Grateful Dead. And I and he's wearing a trench coat, and they hadn't done an encore. And I just <laughs> said, what's going on? And nobody except Go. him and, and, and Rock. And so he held up his hand, and three of his fingers were bleeding. And I ran over, and I grabbed hold of him. And he tried to pull away from me I said no please just give me a minute and when I withdrew my hand the cuts were gone and I was so scared that I just said please don't tell anybody and I was I was really freaked out because that was not what I expected I just wanted to you know ease his pain a little maybe and uh so the next night, I went all the way down from where I lived in Forestville with, with Rock to, to Berkeley where he was playing. And sure enough, he was playing. And at the break, I said, show me your hand. And they were still gone. Now, 30 years later, honey, that's, that was 81. No, no. Also, I, did John Kahn was bleeding. His fingers were bleeding. Yeah. Okay. I, so, was was the was the woman's name Holly Near? Yes. Okay. So the the exact date of this show, you want to talk about uh, Nikki Scully's memory on fire, f May twenty second, nineteen eighty one, because yeah. it's very rare that John would even play with the Dead, let alone playing an upright bass. Go ahead. Right. Continue. Okay. So you got it, Holly Near. Anyhow, and that's right at the, the exact right time because it was three months after I moved that I took the Reiki class, so or something like that. Um, anyway, um, 
So 30 years later, while John was still alive, I was writing, and I asked him if I could include that story in my book. And he said, no, I Yeah, I mean, come on, man, you were there. Wait, hold on. Wait, I, I, he, I'm sorry, the Skype just dropped. He said no. What was the reason why no? He didn't believe it happened. But it did happen. Of course it happened, and he knew what I was talking about. And he was... A... didn't have to spell it out. He just, he, it was just too out there. It was too out there for me. At the time you told him on that on that fateful night on 522 you said please don't tell anybody. Is that what you said to him? I did. Now why and, did you say and, that? Now why would you now not that you wanted to brag about because it's a very deep shamanic thing, but why would you not why would you say that? Because I was scared. I understand. People didn't do that. That was reserved for holy people that wasn't me well well, hold on for a second that that wasn't how you were perceived but you clearly are a holy woman at the time they just you weren't seen it at you weren't perceived i, I didn't see myself either mm-hmm. i didn't know who i was mm-hmm. i didn't have a clue and that scared me and you know what it really put me back because if I'd accepted that, it wouldn't have taken me 20 years to regain that ability. Nikki, you, you used a crystalline prayer to bring a, a girl back from paralysis two years before. Then you're taking away anybody know, that plays the upright bass knows that they have to develop calluses to play it and then John's playing it with the dead and he's bleeding and it went away. So when do you feel you passed the Rubicon to say I'm a legitimate healer? After my teacher became thought, And once Thoth was my teacher and I didn't need any human teachers, I just needed the one to initiate me. And once that was done, then Thoth was my mentor and I knew it. And she knew it too and tried to keep me from knowing it, so pretended like it didn't really mean anything. And then it took a student coming to a class of mine that was a teacher that just got told that he needed to go to my class. And when it didn't work from him and I recognized that he was a teacher, I wanted to know why what I did didn't work for him. And we got on the phone and I tried it again. And instead of taking the journey I was taking him on, he gave me a 40-year survey of what my life was going to be which I got to watch happen until that everything on that list was done. And by then, I already knew who I was. 
but that 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 kind of confidence didn't just happen. It took years. When, because John died in '96, so that was you know that you were writing that book. It was only about 15 years after that incident. He said. Fixed that long ago, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, Jerry died, and John John kind of carried the, J, the Jerry Garcia band for a little while, and then he was gone a few months later. Um, I just don't even know what book I was writing at that. It point. doesn't. I mean, this this is. How did you know? He said to you, I. He he's like, I know what happened, but I don't want it in print. I mean, he. How did you know that oh, he? But he didn't believe it happened. Those were his words. I said, why not? He said, because I don't believe it happened. This is the he, most... Was, this is... I am so overwhelmed with... Um, I'm just overwhelmed right now. I really... I well, don't... Well, I mean, it's, it's fair. I didn't believe it happened either, except that it happened. Rock knew it happened. I knew it happened. John just had to... He just couldn't accept that and and that's the reason would have put me back it might have kept me from ever becoming who I would would become how long after that did you connect with your teacher um, I think 82 or 83. I understand. Um, and then I was only with her for a year before she had me out there teaching. And then I sort of had to force her hand to give me the initiation I, I, I needed. I was told that I needed. And once I had that, then I was, I was on my own. And, um... The world Reiki master was a very close friend of mine, and she witnessed what she knew was a master's initiation, but it wasn't Reiki, and she said, you have your own lineage, and I don't know what it is, but I can recognize it, and it has to be witnessed by a peer. And she gave me a 600-year-old, Tibetan fire carrier and broke out the champagne. <laughs> but you know, she she was the only person I knew at that level. And you know, Reiki is a household name word because of her. Unless you don't know it. Oh, I. I know it I know it very well. I what was your initiate what did you have to do for initiation? <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. Um we have one more voice to play for you um and I'm very bad at remembering voices. No, no listen, this is but I just I guess that is irrelevant. Uh the point is you've been in in my in this milieu um, for quite some time and um, uh, this is going to bring a smile to your face so take a listen to this and we'll come back
Eugene. A lot of these people, were, their families were based in Eugene. Mm -hmm. Garcia family based in Eugene, Rock family based in Eugene. And, you know, so Eugene was the, the safe haven. And so a lot of people would come up here. And uh, so you, they end up. And another area of where we got together was the Oregon Country Fair, which I also came, started in 19, started uh, doing in 1972, same year as the Vanita show, which I attended and then just stayed. Um, the uh, Oregon Country Fair was an arena where Rock would come and, and had some of the best times of his life um, and people like that. So, it, but the moment where Rock invited me probably came through our collaboration with Nikki, um, largely because I was already involved in cooking when they would come um, just as a, a worker bee. Uh, but when, when Nikki and I and Erica decided, Rock said, why don't we put this thing together? And, um, and it sort of took off. They fell away because that wasn't their thing, but I kept going. You have any idea who that is? Yeah, that's Shay Ray. Yeah, you know you're pretty good at voices. <laughs> well, rest it's what he said. <laughs> well, when he, because when when I met you the other night, the minute the light a lightning bolt went through me and Shay Ray's spirit came through me because I did that interview with him. November 2018, and Shay Ray left us not too long after that. But I just, I know it wasn't your bag, but this mobile kitchen with Erica Miller and Nikki and 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 Shay Ray. Can you that that's when you can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, how long? I know it wasn't your thing, but I mean, were you doing? Was that were you doing some cooking? Money and. I met them, and we decided to do a catering business, so I funded the creation of this beautiful fifth-wheel um, kitchen, and we only... did a kitchen while they were building a kitchen for their camp. And then when I was actually broke and on my own and had two kids to feed and trying to figure out how to make a living, I get a phone call from them saying, hey, um, there's somebody who wants to buy your trailer for $20,000. I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> they said, no, come down and get it. So I did. <laughs> pretty funny and that $20,000 got me through my first year of becoming a teacher until I could support myself it was magic and then when he was done with it he gave it back to the um, hog farm and they still use it So it's a really good story. <sighs> but I, I was hoping we'd kind of become more current because I would love to tell people. Well, no, I mean, I, that actually, um, 
I absolutely I was thinking that we'd cover a little bit of that and and do maybe because uh, I mean I don't want to shortchange all of your work that you've done as an author and a healer um I just kind of wanted to lay the groundwork for and let you know that I've been woodshedding for a long time um and that um but I mean you have a, you have a, a can you talk a little bit about um your concept of love and ultimately the journey that where you're at right now today um and how how you give love to the world that's a question that would require a bit of time to explain without any uh, I mean, I try my best to live the concept of Ma'at. And Ma'at is both a goddess and a concept of truth, of balance, of harmony. Um, and when the world becomes out of balance, like it is right now, mm-hmm. Um, in Egyptian mythology, there's a goddess named Sekhmet, who's the lioness goddess. I have a second generation from Karnak Temple um, life-size statue of her in my yard temple and um, my garden temple. And uh, and the first time she came through in her myth and she checked out how people were, she was so freaked out, you know, she slaughtered them to the point where Ra, who had sent her down as the daughter of his eye to, you know, deal with those upstart humans who'd forgotten him and how to respect their planet mm. and um, mm. so he called on Thoth the god of wisdom to um, what should I do and he said well make these 8,000 bats of barley beer and most people read that and they think that they that the way it was translated that they got her drunk but beer was a staple what he put in the beer definitely altered her consciousness, but I think that it had, because at that time there may have been mushrooms, there's evidence that there were uh, mushrooms used back then, as well as other roots and herbs that together, I think she just went, from rage to love and walked away and now that we're back at that place asked her straight up you know what what happened to her how did she change so radically because my last book was 
Sekhmet transformation in the belly of the goddess, in which, you know, you tie tie all the things you want to change yourself in yourself into knots, and then when you take them to a specific statue at Karnak in in the journey in a visualization. She devours not only your offering, but she devours you. And you, while you're digested in her body, you're broken down to your essence, and then you collaboratively recreate yourself and come out as a warrior for Ma'at because Sekhmet is the guardian of Ma'at. And so when she was asked, she told this person that Kuan Yin came to her and taught her about compassion. Wow. And so what is most remarkable in that story is not only that the pantheons communicate with one another, but they evolve. You know, we think, even though we're told as above so below we somehow think the gods are static in their roles and personalities but as above so below they are evolving as we are evolving and love is really the only thing that's going to save us compassionate love. And adherence to the principles of Ma'at. Like my favorite student that, you know, how your greatest desire is that the student surpasses the teacher. Right. Um, Indigo Ron Love uh, She's writing a book called The Gifts of Ma'at, of Ma'at, which was a book that if I were able to do another book, that would have been the next one, but I can't do that anymore. Um, so I finished with eight, and I stand by every one of them still. I mean, there's very little I would change, only new things that I would add. Um, what would you like? Well, I mean, you have a, a phone seminar. Uh, can you talk about this? Uh, the, the healing call to action. The flock. So one yeah. of my favorite things that I do is a free planetary healing call to action. And my husband is the visionary, and I'm the catalyst. <laughs> He's the real shaman, and yeah. I'm the, the, the one that's kind of out front in the partnership. And um, we recently, we've been doing these for years, ever since we co-wrote a book called Planetary Healing, Spirit Medicine for Global Transformation. Like my alchemical healing book tells my story up to and through the Grateful Dead, and then um, 
the Planetary Healing book because they needed, since I had no letters behind my name, they needed to know my story. So I put it in there up to that point. But then when Mark came, everything changed. And um, so the Planetary Healing book we wrote together was 25 years of uh, our work together was combined into this book, including our stories, our personal stories. And when we put out that book, we were so steeped into planetary healing that we started doing these free planetary healing calls to action. We tried to do it every couple of months. And I don't know how many years ago we wrote it. It was several books, which is shamanicjourneys.com or nickyscully.com will get you there. Um, And... But a couple of months ago, we were gifted with an amazing journey that we call the flock because when we first experienced it, it seemed like most of the people that were sharing had become birds of some kind. But we later, later realized it, was, it could be dragons, it could be aliens, it could be anything. But they all shared these incredible healing powers of being able to inject toxicity, even like oil, and turn it into nutrition and put it back out into the world. And so we've got a few hundred people already running around doing all this really intense planetary healing work. And so this coming Saturday, which will be, what, December 21st, yes, the solstice, um, at 11 a.m. Pacific, we're going to do a, a call, a planetary healing call to action, which is the, we're calling the flock level two. And we're going to deal with radiation, all different sorts of radiation with this new flock. The thing is, is that if you're interested, if planetary healing is something that you feel is important enough to give an hour or two and see what you get, well, you have to give a couple because prerequisite for this call, you need to already be in the flock. So at the top of the front page of my website is um, a link to the last recording, which makes you a member of the flock and you realize what you can do. And then this call coming up, you can register from the link just below that. And it's free, and it's probably going to be an hour, maybe a little longer. And um, it's fun, and it's effective in a way that no explanation could make any sense. It's like like what happened with John. You know? <laughs> it's so much a part of my life. Miracles are so much a part of my life. I was with my my daughter with stage four lymphoma for third time in Thailand a year after her half other 
died in the tsunami, so we went there, a bunch of us. And she, after we did our ceremony for the whole community at Riley Bay, all out of the woods to hold hands because we put flyers out and everybody walked in at the moment of it happened. And my daughter came to me and said, okay, Mom, I, I want to get dosed and I don't want you to underdose me. And she wasn't thinking about healing. She wasn't thinking about anything but having a good time before she died. And um, I took her out on this boat, just her and her friend and I. And I was a little nervous because, I mean, it's hard enough taking acid with your children if you've had a rough go. Mm. But when they're dying, that was pushing it. And um, by that night, it was already apparent that she was healing. And by the next day, she was picking up her sister and... You know, I mean, and when she got back to go get herself staged for chemo, I said, you better be prepared to not have cancer. And she says, oh, Mom, don't be ridiculous. And sure enough, there was no cancer, and it was in her brain, her central nervous system, system her liver, and her left kidney. And I did not do that. I did not do that. She's she's still with us today. And she's I the story her story and Luke's story is on my website too. Anybody wants to read it. I, no, I'm, I just I mean, you it, it, the call dropped. She's is she still with us today? Yes, she's totally with us. Oh my god. And plus our relationship has become one of pure love and oh we had a really rough go because she was the daughter of my first husband who was so scary that it was very hard to bond with her properly but she never complained and never um you know she left home really young way too young but um She's just always loved me, and now I love her back equally, and it's really sweet. Nikki, before I let you go, um, can you talk about what, what everybody went, <clears throat> Bill Walton went, Richard Lorette, all these cats went to Egypt for the concerts, but you were profoundly changed there. What, um, after the shows were over, how long did you stay there? And what is something that, what was the hook that, that, what was, what, what, was it something? The was the synchronicity and the magic that I didn't understand. And I was back three weeks later. I, I went back three weeks after. Wow. And then again, and then again. And the the last time was when the girl got healed, 
and that was one year later. Mason Williams told me that Ken Kesey used to say, it's easy to be clever, but the real thing is to be magical. Um, and <laughs> I, anyway. You can't for that, it just has to happen. You know, in the new year, I, I would love to um, do part two with you and talk a little bit more about your books and a little bit more about healing because um, uh, my journey on the radio has become one of trying to re revolutionize consciousness uh, amongst people and inspire people to be themselves. And um, I feel very much humbled to be able to connect with you and would like to continue this conversation if you'd like to. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I look forward to it, and I'll do a demonstration. Thank you, my friend. I have yeah. with it. <laughs> well, we have, yeah, we have more to do, but um, thank you for going there with me, Nikki, and um, much love to you, and, and uh, I'll, I'll call you in a, in a few weeks. Okay, and just please say my website for people again so they can join the flock this weekend. Please go to shamanicjourneys.com and register for a free call. Just to be clear, you do have to have a prerequisite though, is that right? Or is that only for level two? Well, this is level two that's on Saturday. Right. So the prerequisite is the top link and the next link is the registration. Oh. It's, the, it's just the, the journey to, that invites them in and they become, they become, they, have the transformation to be able to do the work and then we'll get into doing deeper work with it this weekend and it, if, if you can't remember Shamanic Journeys Nikki Scully N-I-C-K-I-S-C-U-L-L-Y dot com will also work I love you forever yeah. Nikki thank you hey, so thank and, you. and, I'll, and I'll, sh I'll share I'll share that on on Facebook too I, I saw a post today so I'm, I'll make sure to get that out as well thank you all right cheers to you right. friend we'll do it again all right all looking right. forward later on bye, -bye. bye she's got stories to tell shamanic mm -hmm. healer Nikki Scully that's it for now I'll be back with KP Hawthorne on the other side right after this I can see through Your eyes tell more than you mean them to Little than flashing Like the red and blues Out there on the neon avenue Still I Feel like a stranger Feel like a stranger Reckless and hot. 
Stranger 